welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. All right, friends. If you want to make your way back to your seats, that'd be awesome. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, there are some uh, Bibles in the pews in front of you. You can grab one of those. We're in the book of Colossians, so I invite you to turn there, make your way there. Uh, Before we jump in, I'll just say this by way of announcement. Uh, As it relates to the covenant affirmation of freedom in Christ on non-essentials, so if you've been around Awaken at all, you you recognize this kind of language. We talk about this idea of, we affirm this idea of freedom in Christ, which means that in non-essentials or matters sort of outside of you know, what traditionally is called orthodoxy or essential, uh, we extend freedom to one another to be in relationship with each other, to be in process, maybe even to come to different conclusions at the end of the day. Um, But as it relates to that, there are uh, 10 of us or so that have been meeting since November uh, with the specific intent of drafting some kind of a statement with regard to LGBTQ uh, participation in the life of our community. Um, we talk about this at Discover Awaken, we talk about it in our, uh, our partnership class or our membership classes, but we have nothing stated officially, and this community has never really said, like, this is our direction, this is our path. And so um, I just began to realize that it would be kind and compassionate to sort of do that work and say, like, this is the path that we're taking and this is the direction we're going. Uh, and so we're, we're intending to sort of draft something that the community would then affirm and vote on. In the process, we want to give you an opportunity to speak into that. And so we're hosting three listening circles on January 27th, January 29th, and January 30th. So Sunday afternoon at 1, and then Tuesday and Wednesday at 7 p.m. Uh, and the goal is really to provide a space for you all to sort of uh, to share your hopes and your dreams, your fears and concerns, your thoughts on what you think next steps are that are appropriate. Uh, and, our, and our intent is... Um, to create that space, but then also to listen to each other. After all, they're called listening circles. Uh, so the majority of the time that you spend there, if you do come, will be listening, uh, which is a great and needed um, discipline and habit that our culture is maybe not always in that habit of doing. So I want to create that space. And uh, these are really, they're highly structured meetings. So if you've ever been a part of something like this, Um, You will have three questions that you'll get in, I just gave them to you actually, what are your hopes and dreams, what are your fears and concerns, and what are your next steps, Uh, or what do you think next steps should be. So you have those three questions in advance, and you'll get a timed, a a limited amount of time to share your thoughts on that, and then that's it. And then you're you're done talking for the night, and then everyone else will go around and we'll be in smaller circles. So basically, it's it's a safe place for you to share whatever is on your mind. And whether you come to an affirming position or a non-affirming position at the end of the day, good, great, lovely, all are welcome, and we want to try to create a space that's actually safe for you to share that. Um, So there's a limited number of spots available for these. Um, Because we want to sort of create a certain kind of atmosphere, it requires only a certain number of people. So Uh, There will be, after today, we'll put on the website a link that you can click, and you'll be able to go there and sign up for uh, one of those three days. If it's, uh, once it's full, it'll just be grayed out, and you won't be able to access it. Um, And so everybody gets a fair shot at that first hour and heard about it. We decided to wait to post it for you all. So you're welcome. You know, everybody gets a fair crack at it at the same time. Um, So those are happening the 27th, 29th, and 30th. Sound good? Awesome. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, turn there. I'll invite you to stand and we'll begin reading in verse 3. Paul writes this. 
We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel, that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may, be, you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing, good, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all the power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Pray with me. God, this morning as we uh, gather on this second Sunday of Epiphany and uh, we are mindful of this idea of light that has come into the world in Jesus. I pray that as we turn our attention and our hearts to uh, your scriptures and uh, this book which has been faithfully revealing you over millennia, um, we gather today because in some way, um, at least, well, yeah, because we're, we desire to hear, we desire to, to know, we want to be uh, influenced and impacted and encouraged to be the people that you've made us to be. And so by your spirit, would you do that? Would you come and find us and challenge us, move us, uh, invite us uh, to take you and uh, the scriptures seriously and this life that you've called us to, this life of faith, following Jesus. So we pray this in the strong name of Christ and all of God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Uh, Surgeon General's warning, friends. What we're about to do this morning, um, I'll call it the deep end of the pool. We're going to dive really, really deep into uh, two massive questions. I want to talk about what is the Bible and what is truth. Uh, most of the homiletics professors, which is homiletics is like the, uh, the, the, the art of preaching, they would say in your seminaries, they would say, do not do what I'm about to do. Uh, I'm an eight on the Enneagram, and I, I often like to have something to be opposed to or to say, well, I bet you we could do that. You can say we shouldn't, but I bet you we can, so we're fitting to. Um, we're going we're to try to tackle what is the Bible and what is truth. Um, I, I've been doing some thinking about like the role of the pastor, and uh, I, I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced that this community in particular, but churches in general, don't need pastors who protect and defend things. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I've gone to church and I've heard pastors and they talk, they, there's this very defensive posture. Like it's their job to sort of defend and protect that which is true, right? Orthodoxy or right thinking, right belief. And uh, truth be told, I'm just not sure there's a lot of fruit in that posture. And so thankfully, I don't think there's a lot of fruit in that 
posture, and there's no way I could ever be that kind of pastor. So uh, that's not what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to offer some things to you. Uh, I'm going to offer some possibilities, some ways to think about something, some things that are very, very important in church land, uh, i.e. the Bible. And they may be very new concepts to you. They may be uh, brand new. You may have uh, never heard them before, and you may disagree with me. And I just want you to know that I'm okay with that. Like my pulse, if you could feel it right now, just non-anxious presence right here. That's, that's what I'm doing. Um, I'm not nervous. I'm not stressed. If you disagree with me, that's okay. Um, we don't think that this, the pulpit, if it were wooden and it would mean more, you know, like a big pulpit, uh, this is not the last word. Actually, this is, I would argue, this is the beginning of a conversation. Um, I would like to offer the first word as you then take it and suss it out with your people that you do life with and community. Uh, you, you wrestle with what I've said or what's been offered or this perspective. And, it, and you still may say, you know, I just, I don't agree with you, Micah. Okay, great. We don't have to agree all the time. But as your pastor, I think it's in part my job to challenge you to think differently, to be uh, uh, provoked a little bit in the most pastoral way, to... Uh, Think deeply about the things that we say matter the most. And, and if you know, you're in church, arguably we're saying that the Bible and Jesus matter. So I want to try to uh, see if we can think better about it. Does that sound good? Okay, so what is the Bible? Uh, we, we, last week we started a study on a book of the Bible. It's called Colossians. It's in the New Testament. Paul arguably wrote it. And um, I want to pause before we kind of keep going in this study to do a little bit of groundwork to, to sort of wrestle with this question of what is the Bible? Like, what is this thing that we're intending to, like, study and spend time in? And uh, that is a really important question. So I want to do that before we get too far. If I'm being honest, I think for many of us, myself included, even Christians, people of faith, the Bible is a bit of a mixed bag sometimes. Amen? Yeah? Nod? Encourage, yes? Encourage the pastor? Let me know I'm on the right track. I think that the Bible is a mixed bag sometimes, and, it com- and sometimes I have this sort of like, nah, kind of relationship with it. And I don't know about you, but if that's the case, I'm going to suggest that that is often because, or largely in or do large part because the way in which we hold the Bible, the way in which we approach the Bible, the assumptions that we have when we come to it, or the posture that we have when we talk about the Bible. Um, For example, sing along if you know it. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Yeah, there we go. Somebody else did it first hour. Such a great song, right? We teach it to our kids at camp. It's awful. It's actually completely inaccurate. The Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, which is the Bible. The problem is that the Bible doesn't talk about itself that way. The Bible doesn't call itself the Bible. When 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 the Bible talks about the word of God, The referent is not this. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and all things were made through him, and all things are held together. And then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Bible seems to think that the Word of God is the Christ who becomes incarnate 
Jesus. This is interesting, super valuable. We should pay attention to it. But to say it is the word of God, no, actually it's not. There are words of God in this book and they are no less inspired by the divine, but this is not the word of God. According to this, the Bible, the Christ, the Logos, the one who was preexistent there in the beginning, the energy, the juice and the joints and the motion of life, the thing that holds it all together, that becomes incarnate and embodied, Jesus is the word of God. The problem we have is we take the word made flesh and we just want to make it word again. The Bible has no interest in doing that, I don't think. So, this kind of a posture where we think about the Bible as the word of God, inspired, infallible, authoritative, uh, inerrant, uh, unquestionable, that which we must submit to, that kind of posture is what I think many of us have that eh, kind of experience. Uh, People who think about the Bible this way tweet things like this. This is real, by the way. Read the Bible, memorize the Bible, speak the Bible, submit to the Bible, love the Bible, marry the Bible this year. You can laugh. Ah, wow. I mean, uh, I, uh, oh. I don't mean to disparage anyone, and yet, I have so many problems with that statement, those statements. Um, One of my friends responded on on Twitter, and, and I thought, totally nailed it. I'll just read this quote. I would agree wholeheartedly. They said, the trouble I have with this is the willful naivete that the Bible is self interpreting, meaning that like the meaning of it is plain and anyone can get it. It is not. People do it poorly, interpret the Bible, people do it poorly all the time with disastrous consequences. And the solution isn't just to read the Bible more or marry the Bible. Rather, it is to surround oneself with a community of people who read it differently than you do so that your interpretive biases are exposed. Ah, preach brother, come on now. Now, for people who mention this or claim or tweet these kinds of things, for all the women out there, it's fine. But for the men in the room, if we marry the Bible, shouldn't it be submitting to us? That's a low blow. Keep the gloves up, Micah. Come on. (laughs) We can have some fun, right, church? Right? Look alive. Look alive. Listen, for many of us, for many of us, myself included, when the Bible is talked about, it is the word of the Lord, the word of God, right? Infallible, inerrant, inspired, unflappable, authoritative, uh, like unchanging. It's the last word. It is the final word. It is objective T, capital T, truth. And any knowledge of God or truth that we claim has to go through or then submit to the Bible. This is what it looks like if you were to like put it in a graph, right? This is actually what systematic theology looks like. I actually saw a graph like this in seminary. Like the Bible is the basis, it's the foundation for anything we claim to be true or, not, or know about God. And then we build all of our beliefs and theologies about God in the spiritual life 
because of the Bible, right? So anything we know about God or Jesus or salvation, sin, all of the, all, and, and the rest of it, it all has to pass through the Bible. And I'm not saying that the Bible shouldn't inform our knowledge or our claims about what's true. But I am saying that there are a number of things that should be in the mix, right? Um, many of you are familiar with the Wesleyan quadrilateral, of which there are four, quad, four things that are in play. Scripture, yes, but reason, uh, the spirit, tradition, right? These four things that inform what we think about and what we believe about God. Richard Rohr talks about the tricycle. Have you guys ever heard this one? It's the idea that experience is the front wheel of the tricycle. And let's just be honest, everybody. We would all affirm something is true because we've experienced it as true, right? Well, but you can't trust your experience. You do it every day. Just Christians told you not to because the Bible says your heart is wicked and deceitful all the way to the core. Well, that's in the Psalms and it's probably a little illustrative, right? It's not, we all, experience always rules the roost. And then scripture and then tradition, right? The perennial tradition, the mothers, the fathers, the saints, the people who've gone before us. All three of these things should be in concert as we think about, as we check something that we would say is true or valid, right? Are you tracking? So I'm not saying the Bible shouldn't inform uh, like what we claim to be true or knowledge that we have, but it cannot be and it should not be the only thing or even the most important thing at the top. These three things have to work together or these four things have to work together. Now, one of the valid critiques of this posture that I've sort of caricature, I have you know, made a caricature a little bit. I'm doing that for, for effect. But one of the critiques of this posture is written like this. This is from a, a book I'm reading in, along with Colossians. And this person's arguing, like, what Paul does in the first couple of verses, he says this. You posit a divine authority that structures and orders the world in a certain way. Then you attribute that authority to yourself, Paul, as the author of the letter. You wipe out any opposition that suggests things might be looked at differently. You put clear restrictions on personal and communal life. And then you top it off with divine sanction of patriarchy and slavery. That's in Colossians. Paul sanctions patriarchy and slavery. We're going to get to it. I'm looking forward to that weekend. But then he says, and you expect you know, a person of the 21st century to like, believe this or to learn from it and maybe even receive it as divinely inspired scripture. Sorry, Nick. I'm adjusting as we go here. Um, but for many of us, this critique, it's, it's true. It lands because our experience of the world, our experience of life, isn't this authoritative, unchangeable, like, uh, uh, imporous, no. Life is like, it's relationships. It's malleable, it happens, it's dynamic. It moves and it changes. Even quantum physics tells us that the world is about this interdependent relationships always happening. So we come to a text like this and people p posture themselves and preach it like this is the last word. It's, you have to submit to it or, or nothing. Uh, and I would just say, man, if that's the only option, like, what are we going to do? Because I'm with many of you. If that's the only way to see the text and the only way to approach the Bible, then it has done, it probably is doing, and will continue to do a harm to a lot of people. So I say we should figure out a different way to look at it. Good news, friends. I'm not just a downer this morning. I'd like to offer another way to look at it, okay? What if, what if this is not the only way to approach the Bible? What if faithful Christians who take the Bible very seriously don't share these assumptions that I have set up, but rather think about the Bible differently. 
What if we appreciate and we're grateful for the Enlightenment and the Protestant Reformation, but we also are honest with it and we talk about its shortcomings and pitfalls as it relates to the Bible? Uh, What if there's another way that doesn't take the Bible less seriously, but actually takes it more seriously? What if the Bible isn't valuable and authoritative because it's the Word of God, capital W, uh, static, unchanging, authoritative, objective, capital T, truth? What if the authority and the value comes from something else? Like, what if it's authoritative and valuable because it bears witness to humans over time in relationship with God? There's a fancy idea. What if it's valuable because it attests, it bears witness to, it tells the story of the Christ who becomes embodied and incarnate in Jesus? And then what if it's authoritative and valuable actually because of you sitting in the room who have been changed by and transformed by this living, resurrected Christ? What if the authority and value of the Bible is actually resonant in your lives and in our hearts and in this community and communities like it? What if it's an invitation to participate in the story that is continuing to be written? What if it's an invitation to wrestle? What if it's an invitation to bring all of your questions, to not silence them and check them at the door, but actually to bring them because in fact, the whole Bible is a book of people who are wrestling with what it means to be in relationship with God. That's the whole thing. That's all that's in here. Humans trying to understand what does it mean to be in relationship with God? So they bring their questions, they bring their unanswered ideas, they, and, and I would say, so should you, so should we. The old time covenanters used to say, what if it is the altar or an altar where we meet the risen Christ? The Bible is important and it's valuable and it has authority in our lives as a community for reasons other than you can't question it. It's the top of the hierarchy, it's the word of God. I don't think those are helpful, actually, because sometimes our experience of life is far different from that. It is valuable, but for far more profound reasons. Richard Rohr says this about the Bible, and I think this is fantastic. He says, the Bible is a history of the inspired writings of the Jewish and Christian peoples over as much as 1,500 years that we have chosen and selected, let's be honest about that, we've chosen and selected to be normative and to give us a touchstone for what we believe. It sets a trajectory that we can build on. He says, this is our home base. Now, two words that don't often get talked about when we talk about the Bible, trajectory and normative. We have to be honest that even in the Bible itself, there's trajectory. It begins with very primitive and and barbaric and ancient views of God and humanity. Think Joshua and Judges. The divine is condoning, not only condoning, but commanding genocide. And then we find later in the text that we've moved on beyond that or that somehow there's a trajectory that's moved and we have Jesus saying, love your enemies. We have John, this unbelievably profound gospel, writing about what it means to be in union with the divine, which doesn't include these barbaric and primitive things that were a part of it once. So we have to just be honest. It's all inspired, it's all relevant, it's all there, but even the Bible itself has a trajectory. And we're on it, friends. What if the Bible is valuable because it sets the trajectory that we now are living in the midst of on this side of resurrection? And so what's necessary are your questions, your wrestlings, your pushback, your 
what does it mean to follow this God? How do I live as a human connected to my own body in this world in ways that are life-giving and hopeful and loving to my neighbor? This is the task of, this is the invitation that we've been given. So my suggestion to you, why are we studying this book? And normative, essentially just establishing, relating to, deriving from a standard or norm. That there is a target, there is something that we're aiming at. There is a kind of human experience that we are after. It is wrapped up in and made known to us in Jesus. And so that's why we say we follow this way, this way of Jesus. So here's the, here's the all-important question then. Why are we studying this book? Is it the last word? Is it the static, inflexible, impenetrable foundation upon which everything is built? Or are these the first words of a conversation you're invited into? It's very different. It's very different. It's a little scary. Might be a little anxious. I don't know about you. If anyone's anxious in the room, I'm excited. And actually, you might think I don't love the Bible. Far be it from that. The exact opposite is true. I'm, I'm doing this. We're studying this because I love this book. And I think it's valuable. And I want to take it more seriously, not less seriously. So that's why we're doing this. I don't know if you were wondering, but there you are. Now, what is truth? Okay, I'm gonna take the next five minutes to talk about what is truth, right? Somebody's like, you just, you're trying to do like a 12-week philosophy course in 10 minutes. It's fair, it's fair. I'm gonna pivot away from like the Bible in general and specifically to Colossians in chapter one, which Paul, I would argue, is sort of circling around this idea of what is truth. For you and I, we live in a world that we've inherited certain ideas about how we understand something to be true. Largely, if you know anything about philosophy and history, has anybody heard of the Enlightenment before? Yeah, like 18th century, right? Reason and our ability to think becomes the primary uh, way by which we understand something is true. Rene Descartes, do you guys remember Rene Descartes? Anybody remember what he said? There it is, thank you, Michael. I think, therefore, I am. What's he saying? My ability to reason, my ability to think, is actually the foundation for my being. So, in the Enlightenment, reason, our capacity to think, math, science, laboratories, this is what truth looks like. It's objective, it's detached. We can observe it from an objective perspective. We can, uh, it's facts, propositions, it's distant and static. The problem here, friends, is this. This is the world we live in. We've, it's, like the, it's like the water we're all swimming in, but the Bible doesn't share these assumptions. In fact, the Bible speaks about truth in a largely different way. So when we take our understanding of truth and we import it into the Bible, hello, Joe, got a problem, my grandpa used to say. Here's, what the Bible, here's how the Bible talks about truth. It's subjective, it's connected, it's experienced, it's personal, it's intimate, it's relational, it's dynamic and active. In the book of Proverbs, truth comes like a woman in the street calling wisdom to the people who would listen. She sets a table for you to come and think about, no, to eat, to consume, to take in truth. It's an experiential thing. The word truth in Hebrew, emeth, it it means like, it's translated true, but it also means faithfulness. So for God to be true is a relational idea that God is keeping covenant 
with God's people. And for us to say God is true is a relational concept according to Paul and the Bible, which is why Paul says that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, has come to you. It's like it's embodied. That's a joke. Jesus is a body. He's like, it's as if the gospel, this good news, this truth about God is actually like walking up and down the streets like a human, like a person, and you can experience it and be in relationship with it. Now, gang, here's where this gets crazy for us. For you and I, I went to Bible camp. Did anybody go to Bible camp before? Anybody do sword drills? Yeah. Sword drills are great, wonderful. I've hidden thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Amy Grant, thank you very much. (laughs) I don't disagree, but it's rooted in an understanding that propositions and my ability to say the right things means I know something. The Bible disagrees wholeheartedly. Proverbs, Psalms, when the truth of God, the knowledge of God, the glory of God comes, it says that it will fill the earth like water that righteousness and peace will kiss like they're in a relationship with one another. We have seminaries and largely 95% of the work you do to get a degree, it's all here. If I can repeat it, if I can say it, if I can reason it, I know it. That is a foreign idea to the Bible. What does this mean for you and I? You can say, I love God, I follow Jesus. But if you are increasingly a bitter, disgruntled, selfish person, you don't know God. Not according to the text. What Paul says is, the fruit of the gospel, which you know is being born in your life. So what happens is you change, you experience grace, and you become people of peace. This was last week. You can't say, I love God, and then not feed your neighbor. Paul talks about this in another book, right? You can't say, be warm and well-fed, friend, have a good life, and when there are real needs among you. You can't do that. You don't know God in that sense. That's what Paul's saying. So for people who want to like feel okay about ourselves because we say the right things, like, I affirm faith in Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, Paul would say, so what? Does it make a difference in your life? Is there any fruit from that seed of knowledge that you claim to know? Because if there isn't, you don't know. You haven't experienced the love of God in Christ. And Paul's claim in Colossians that he's saying to these people, he says, it has come to you. It's walking among you. It is alive in your community and we know it not because of all the right answers on your essays, but because the fruit of your life, there's more joy, there's more compassion, there's more self-control, there's more gentleness, there's more hope, there's more justice. When these things are happening in a community, then you know, oh, you know, you understand you are relating to and it is changing your life. That's how the Bible talks about truth. My question to you this morning is, do you know it? And I'm not gonna call you up and say like, what's the fruit of your, but, but that's the test. James talks about this, you will know the tree's fruit, or you'll know it by its fruit. 
And so to the community that gathers called Awaken, what's the fruit of our belief in God? Paul would say, it doesn't matter a lick what you say you believe if it doesn't bear witness, if it doesn't flesh out, if it isn't embodied in your lives. And so, this morning I ask you a couple of questions as we close. Have you, do you recognize the truth that this book is claiming has come in Christ? That somehow, in the mysterious ways in which the divine works, that God has chosen to make God's self known incarnate, enfleshed, embodied in the person of Jesus. And that this person comes and says, the story's not over. Death does not win. In fact, I have had victory over death and therefore you can follow me, even die so that you can live because this is how it's done, people. And follow me all the way. There's a, there's a, new, there's a new path forward. Will you, will you believe that? Will you trust that? Will you live that out? And Paul claims and the people in the scriptures claim that when that thing happens, when it takes root, when it lives in us and in you and in me and in our communities, we become more gracious, more compassionate, more joyful, more hopeful, more generous. So, is that, is that what's happening in the church? In religious communities that claim the name of Jesus? Well, I hope and pray that that's what's happening in this community. Insofar as we have something to say about it, which we do, what say you? Have you recognized and related to and allowed the seeds of the gospel, this truth about Jesus, to actually affect and become a part of who you are so that you show up differently in the world? So that when you're at work or you're in your family situations or you're at school, you're doing whatever it is you do because of what you know I would say we need to start trusting our own bodies and experience a little bit more than we do as a part of our discipleship but so that you know because it, makes, it actually shows up in the way you live your life. That's the invitation. That's all I'll say. Pray with me if you will. God, this morning um, we are attempting to grapple with and wrestle with uh, a really deep and profound and meaningful ideas about what is the nature of this book and what does it mean to, to know and experience as real what's true about you. And so I pray that whatever words are inadequate that I've offered in the next few moments of silence that you would meet us, find us, speak to us, and offer what's true about you. Whatever is inaccurate, whatever we've been told, or whatever we believe, or whatever we see that is not congruent with who you are, would you just allow it to fall away so that what remains is what's true? Speak to us, Holy Spirit. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter 
Play with the community. See you next time.